Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Names help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by David Skeel. David is the S. Samuel Arsht Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School and the author of, among other books, Debt's Dominion, A History of Bankruptcy Law in America. David also served as a member of Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board following the territory's bankruptcy crisis in 2016. For our summer 2020 issue, David wrote a fascinating essay titled State Bankruptcy Revisited. In his piece, David argues that Congress should consider including a state bankruptcy framework and a future aid package as states continue to endure economic struggles during the coronavirus pandemic. While the case for state bankruptcy is complicated, David writes that it remains an entirely compelling one. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to start out with a quote from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. This is what kind of put state bankruptcy back in the news earlier this year. So McConnell said in an April radio interview that he would, quote, certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy route. Critics immediately condemned this and said that he was essentially saying that the Senate would approve no further aid to states. But you wrote at the start of your essay that this was kind of misinterpreting what he was saying. Could you start out by telling us what did McConnell actually mean when he was advocating state bankruptcy here? Well, to answer that question, I think it's really important to put his statement in context. And the context is a few days earlier, the president of the Illinois State Senate had sent a letter to some Congress people in Washington basically asking for its pension system to be bailed out, asking for 40 plus billion dollars of help, 10 billion dollars of which would have gone straight to plug old holes in Illinois' pensions. It seemed to me that Leader McConnell was essentially firing a shot across the bow, saying there is a crisis now. Congress needs to do something, but Congress shouldn't be bailing states out for problems they got themselves into before the crisis. I did not take him at all to be saying there's no role for Congress at all to help out the states. I took him to be specifically targeting those comments at the suggestion that this was a great opportunity for states to get a whole bunch of money from Washington to fill holes they had dug for themselves before the crisis. So before we talk more about sort of the shape that some of that reform could take, I wanted to see if we could hear from you a little bit about your history studying this topic. So I know that you've written on this for years, a book, and you've written for National Affairs on the topic before. And you also served in the supervisory role during Puerto Rico's fiscal insolvency crisis in 2016. And in your last article for National Affairs, you wrote about how that experience sort of changed the way that you think about territorial or state bankruptcy. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how that's changed. Absolutely. And I am, as it turns out, still serving on that oversight board. Oh. I am in the fourth year of my three-year term on the, uh, the oversight <laughs> board. The seven of us were appointed to three-year terms in 2016. But the statute also said that if we're not replaced, we can continue to serve. And so at this point, we're over four years into the Oversight Board's existence. We have not been replaced at this point. And so I'm still serving. 
turns out several of my colleagues have stepped down. So we're a little short staffed at the moment. We have five out of the seven of us still on, but we're still going. So how I came into all of this, I first entered the debate actually a few years before my Puerto Rico experience. This debate kicked up in 2010 for the first time. There was a financial crisis then coming out of the last crisis, the 2007 to 2009 Great Recession. California was making noises that it wanted a bailout from Congress of its problems. Illinois even then was in, in huge financial distress. Somebody asked me in the fall of 2010 whether states could file for bankruptcy. I've never really thought about it that much, but I knew the answer was no. We have a bankruptcy chapter, chapter nine for cities, for municipalities, but there's no bankruptcy framework for states. And so I started thinking about it. Other people were thinking about it at, at the same time and wrote an article in the Weekly Standard saying, you know, there really ought to be a state bankruptcy option. That got a tad of attention. What got a lot more attention was beginning in 2011, Newt Gingrich and Jeb Bush wrote an op-ed saying there ought to be a state bankruptcy framework. And so there was this very short-lived, very vibrant debate about whether we should have a state bankruptcy option. I was almost the only scholar who was arguing yes back then. There happily, there are a few more now, but back then I was pretty much the only one. Got shot down very quickly. Both Democrats and Republicans decided they hated the idea, at least in the, in the short run. And so it disappeared. And then time marched on. A few years later, Puerto Rico was in financial distress. Puerto Rico had no way to file for bankruptcy, no way for its municipalities to file for bankruptcy. Congress passed legislation in the summer of 2016, creating an oversight board for Puerto Rico, also creating a bankruptcy option. And I ended up being one of the seven people, seven initial members of that oversight board. And serving there, it's not state bankruptcy, but Puerto Rico itself is in, it's not technically bankruptcy, it's called Title Three of PROMESA, but it's very much like bankruptcy, very much like Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy. We put Puerto Rico in bankruptcy three years ago in May of 2017. It's been in ever since. And that's what's really shaped my thinking or, or caused my thinking to evolve is actually seeing a big public entity like Puerto Rico that is in some ways comparable to a state go through a bankruptcy process. And I've come out of that sort of with mixed lessons about whether I think state bankruptcy can work in practice. At the end of the day, I do think it can work, and I think the argument is still compelling. But I think that I'm a little more clear-eyed about the pros and cons. And just to mention one pro and one con, as I talk about in the article, the main pro, in my view, is it's really strange to a lot of people to think about the idea of a single federal judge overseeing the finances of a state, right. overseeing the finances of a state. It, it strikes people as you know, maybe problematic from a state sovereignty perspective, just sort of strange that one decision maker would have that much authority. That's what we have in Puerto Rico. And in, in my view, it is actually worked out really well. The judge has been very careful not to step on the toes of the democratically elected decision makers of Puerto Rico, but also to implement the statute. And it, it really has been a lot less awkward than I feared. That was one of the things I was concerned about with state bankruptcy. 
So from that perspective, I think Puerto Rico is evidence that it could work, that it's not as weird an idea as a lot of people thought back in 2010. The flip side of it, the other lesson that is a less happy one, in my view, for state bankruptcy is it's really messy and it's really complicated. I think back in 2010, I had this idea that everybody would come to the table, quickly negotiate a deal, and the state's debts would be restructured and it would move on if it, in fact, had filed for bankruptcy. We're over three years in, and we're still a ways from a completed restructuring. Now, there are ulterior reasons for that. Puerto Rico has had a massive hurricane. It has had the forced resignation of a governor last summer. It had earthquakes in December and January. It now has the coronavirus. So there are a lot of acts of God that have interfered (laughs) with the process, but it has proven to be very messy and difficult. And so I think you have to be realistic about how quickly the process can work and how clean it will be. But at the end of the day, I think it does work. And I think it is significantly better than the alternatives that a state is going to have if it's in deep distress. The key thing to think about there, in my view, is the comparison is not bankruptcy for a state versus a state that's fiscally healthy. It's a state that is in fiscal crisis. Illinois is the obvious example now. Is it better with a bankruptcy option or without one? You know, what happens without a bankruptcy option? What happens without a bankruptcy option is they cut services, they lay people off, it gets really messy. And the sacrifice is not distributed equally. It ends up being visited on one or two constituencies. The other alternative is a bailout, which in my view is both bad policy and probably not realistic for a major state. And as compared to those, bankruptcy is an attractive alternative. Great. I don't want to take us too far away. I think we still have some questions about the history of sort of state bankruptcy options. But since we're talking about the pros and cons there, and especially your experience in Puerto Rico, I wanted to ask, so things went really well in Puerto Rico from a political standpoint, the sort of awkwardness between the federal and the, not a state, but a semi-self-sovereign entity was mediated by some very savvy, some very careful and prudent appointees. And so it worked out well, already. Advisors, um, probably. <laughs> right, sure, fair enough. But I can imagine a situation, right, in which let's say a Trump appointee in the federal judiciary is picked to oversee Illinois' restructuring. And I could see that, you know, leading to some very real legitimacy issues, political infighting, really heated confrontation, really. And so I'm wondering if there's things that can happen on a structural level and how we think about implementing state bankruptcy that could prevent that kind of thing from happening. That's a great question and a really hard issue. And I should note about Puerto Rico, it's worked really well with the judge, in my view. It would not be accurate to say it has all been seamless and everybody has loved the oversight board. We've had lots of friction with the governor of Puerto Rico, with the prior governor, and to some extent with the current governor of Puerto Rico. And so even in that situation, there's been a very awkward relationship between the oversight board, which is the debtor in the bankruptcy, and the democratically elected officials. I think it's worked okay, but there has been a lot of friction and there have been some issues that we have not agreed on. On the state with the Trump appointee and maybe a Democratic state governor, I mean, the simplest answer to the question is a state doesn't have to file for bankruptcy if they don't want to. And so if there's a risk of something like that, you can 
decide not to file for bankruptcy. And, and people often forget this. Put it, creating a state bankruptcy option doesn't mean troubled states are in bankruptcy. It just means it is a possibility that they could file. Similarly, if the state did file for bankruptcy and it got a bankruptcy judge that were, was coming from a completely different perspective politically, the state still is the one that has the cards. Only the state can propose a restructuring plan. If it's just a disaster, the state can ask for the case to be dismissed. So there are limits to how much a bankruptcy judge and her politics would affect the process, because it really is the state that's making the decision. At the end of the day, the judge does have a veto. And so you could have frictions that way. Historically, that has not been a problem. Bankruptcy judges tend to be pretty pragmatic and they want to see a restructuring happen too. And so it's a pretty unlikely situation where a judge is going to use the bankruptcy as a, an opportunity to whack the state. It is possible. I mean, I think that is a legitimate concern that if the judge and the state decision makers just didn't like each other, they just viewed the world from completely different perspectives, there are friction points in the bankruptcy process. But the state has the option at every choice. They have the option to file. They have the option to propose the plan. They have the option what the plan has in it. And so it's pretty unlikely, I think, that that would be a huge problem. Sure. And David, that goes back to it would need to be voluntary for one, for it to be constitutional, two, also for states to even want to kind of consider that as an option. Is that fair to say? I think both of those are fair to say. So municipal bankruptcy, bankruptcy for cities, has been around since the 1930s. It was immediately challenged as unconstitutional. And one of the arguments for unconstitutionality was that it was a violation of state sovereignty. And interestingly, the Supreme Court in 1936 said, yes, it is a violation of state sovereignty. Two years later, after Congress had passed essentially an identical municipal bankruptcy law, just minor changes from the earlier one, Supreme Court changed his mind and said it was fine. What comes out of that is municipal bankruptcy probably is constitutional. I mean, it is constitutional under current Supreme Court case law. I believe state bankruptcy also would be, but it has to be voluntary. If it were involuntary, if a state could be thrown into bankruptcy, I think there's no question it would be a violation of the Tenth Amendment. It'd be a violation of state sovereignty probably would be a violation even if someone else were allowed to propose the terms of the restructuring. I think it has to be voluntary all the way through, from the initiation of the case to the proposal for what the debt restructuring is going to look like. So that sort of speaks to one, one of the key challenges, which is the constitutional challenge. But there's some other challenges as well that you deal with in the piece. And one of them is the criticism that the bankruptcy option would undermine public employees, confidence in public services, and run the risk of severely and suddenly cutting pensions for public employees. And you cite sort of the examples of Detroit and Stockton as sort of counter arguments. So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about how those examples disprove that line of attack. The criticism of state bankruptcy along these lines is it's just an opportunity to whack state public employees and state public employee pensions and to dramatically write down pensions. In my view, this turns out to be exactly backwards when you look at what actually happens in bankruptcy. And the first thing to note is that 
absent bankruptcy, it's not like life is a picnic for public employees. I mean, look at what's going on in Illinois right now. I can't remember if they've made layoffs already, but there's a real risk of layoffs. Services have been cut dramatically in the last few years. So if you don't have bankruptcy, the folks who tend to get hit most are service recipients of various kinds, from universities to other kinds of services, and public employees. And Bankruptcy, by contrast, ensures that they're not the only ones that share the sacrifice. Bondholders will be written down some, other creditors will be written down some. Big benefit of bankruptcy is that it distributes the sacrifice of financial distress much more equally. It's not visited on just one or two parties. The other point which you alluded to is when you look at the actual cases so far, Detroit, Stockton, California, Pensions haven't been whacked. These are significantly underfunded pension plans. And, and across the country, underfunded pensions, pensions that haven't been properly funded, are the biggest problem in many cities and states. File for bankruptcy when Detroit and Stockton filed for bankruptcy, their pensions weren't slashed. In Detroit, the pensions were cut a little bit, much less than other creditors' claims were cut. Stockton, they were not cut at all. In Puerto Rico, as I mentioned, we don't yet have a confirmed plan of adjustment, but we had one on the table earlier in 2020. It's still on the table. It's in the process of new discussions about what to do about it. That proposes only modest cuts to pensions well less than 10% of the unfunded portion of the pension. So the idea that pensions are going to get just completely wiped out is mistaken. You know, it's an understandable worry, but in reality, there is a widespread perception that it just doesn't make sense to completely wipe out or to seriously cut them because of the human costs of doing that. So, David, that tended to be a criticism from the left, since they tend to be tied with public employees, public sector unions. From the right, there's been this criticism that would hurt bond markets. And I know this could be a tough thing for those of us who aren't well-versed in financial markets to understand, but could you kind of walk us through what the criticism there is? Sure. Both of these criticisms drive me crazy. Uh, <laughs> as you said, the, the public employee criticism comes from the left. That's why the left was hostile, has been so hostile to state bankruptcy. The criticism from the right, the standard criticism is if you create a state bankruptcy option, the municipal bond market will collapse. No city or state will ever be able to access the capital markets again, borrow the money they need for long-term projects if you're borrowing in a fiscally sound way. This strikes me as a really, really weak argument, although it's one that has lots of adherence. And, and there are two or three reasons why it's weak. One reason it's weak is that it seems to assume that the credit markets can't distinguish between a good credit risk and a bad credit risk. It seems to assume that if we put a state bankruptcy option in place, which would not be relevant for any state except a state that is in significant financial distress, the assumption is that every state's bonds are going to be hurt, and that's just not the way the bond markets work. The city and state bond market is not perfectly efficient. It's not the best market in the world, but it's not a bad market, and it can distinguish between good states and bad states, financially speaking. And you don't have to look back very far to see that. A couple of months ago when I was writing this article, Illinois issued debt and Utah issued debt at roughly the same time. 
Utah paid for its debt almost nothing above the risk-free rate of interest. Illinois paid about 5% above the risk-free rate of interest, and there's a good reason for that. Illinois is a terrible credit risk. Utah is a good credit risk. So one reason that argument is not compelling to me is it assumes that the markets can't tell good risk from bad risk, and they, they really can. Another reason that it is problematic to me is to the extent that a state bankruptcy option would have an across-the-board effect on credit. It would raise interest rates across the board for both good credit risk and bad ones, which I don't think would happen. But to the extent it would have a nationwide effect, the reason it would have this effect is because it would be removing a bailout subsidy. It would be removing the assumption that if a state is in deep financial distress, what Congress is going to do at the end of the day is bail it out. It seems to me we shouldn't have that subsidy in the price of bonds. I don't think it's a big part of the bond price, but to the extent there's a little bit of bond interest rates reflect an assumption there will be a bailout, I think it would be a good thing if that subsidy disappeared. Bailouts are bad policy for lots of reasons, one of which is if you expect you're going to get them, it removes your incentive to be fiscally responsible. And there's lots of good evidence worldwide that that's what happens. If there's an assumption the national government will bail out a city or a state, the cities or states tend to be less responsible about how they spend money. Final reason that that bond argument is uncompelling in, in my view is if the existence of a bankruptcy option were going to destroy the markets, we would expect the markets to be destroyed already because we already have a municipal bankruptcy option that's available in every state in the union. And there is no evidence that that municipal bankruptcy option has destroyed the credit markets. There still are credit markets that are just as good in states that allow their cities to file for bankruptcy as they are in states that don't allow their cities to file for bankruptcy. So I think that sort of does it for the criticisms that I think a lot of people level against state bankruptcy. But I was wondering for a lot of people, I think it's not so much that it's a contentious issue as that it's like an unheard of issue. I think most people have no conception of what a state bankruptcy process could look like. So I guess maybe using the example of Puerto Rico or even maybe speculating about one of the states like Illinois or something, could you walk us through what that process would look like? So what would the state have to do? How would the federal judiciary get involved? Who would appoint the judge to oversee the bankruptcy and like the general process? It's an important question. So I'll kind of use Puerto Rico as an example and show where you could deviate from that if you wanted to. So the first thing you would do is you would put the state bankruptcy and framework in place. You would create the provisions that would govern the state bankruptcy framework. It's worth noting that this isn't something that Congress would have to do whole cloth. What is done with municipal bankruptcy, Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code, and what was done with Puerto Rico's restructuring option is the very first provision in the bankruptcy framework simply borrows lots of other provisions from bankruptcy law. So it would borrow provisions from Chapter 11, which is the corporate reorganization chapter. It would likely borrow provisions from municipal bankruptcy in Chapter 9. And so the first thing you do is you have your first provision. A lot of people think that a state bankruptcy framework should be Chapter 8 of the Bankruptcy Code because there currently is not a Chapter 8. And Chapter 9 is municipal bankruptcy. 
So section 801 would be a list of 15 or 20 or 25 provisions from elsewhere in the bankruptcy code that would govern the case. And you would add 15 or 20 more for state bankruptcy specific issues, much as has been done with municipal bankruptcy. And then you'd have your bankruptcy framework in place. The thing that's worth or a thing that's worth emphasizing, which I've already mentioned, is having that framework in place doesn't mean anybody ever has to use it. You know, you put it in place, Illinois doesn't have to use it. It actually would have beneficial effects even if nobody ever did use it. I mean, it seems to me, for instance, that pension beneficiaries would care a little bit more about whether their pensions are funded or not if an unfunded pension might be restructured a little bit in bankruptcy. A funded pension can't be restructured in bankruptcy. But if you do file, if there is a bankruptcy option, the state decides to use it, it files for bankruptcy. What happens then is there needs to be a provision to determine who the bankruptcy judge will be. So in a normal bankruptcy case, a chapter 11 corporate bankruptcy case, that just happens automatically. You file your bankruptcy case in a particular district, and usually that district has a kind of automatic system for determining, and it's random, typically, to determine who the bankruptcy judge is. For public entity bankruptcies, it's not usually random. So the way the bankruptcy judge was chosen for Puerto Rico what the statute said is that the chief justice of the Supreme Court, so John Roberts, picks any federal trial court judge in the country. And so when Puerto Rico filed for bankruptcy, Chief Justice Roberts had to pick who the bankruptcy judge is, and he could pick any judge in the country. The bankruptcy was filed in Puerto Rico. Not surprisingly, he picked a New York City bankruptcy judge, a Southern District of New York bankruptcy judge. So there would be some sort of system like that to determine who the judge is. Probably the chief justice of the Supreme Court or somebody like that would pick the judge. At that point, the case gets going. And in many respects, it looks from then on like any other bankruptcy case. The debtor negotiates with its major creditors. So it would negotiate with its unions. It would negotiate with its bondholders comes up with a proposed restructuring plan where everybody's going to take some kind of haircut, their claims are going to be adjusted in one way or another, and then proposes what is called a plan of adjustment in the municipal bankruptcy or state bankruptcy context. And at that point, ultimately, the judge is going to have to decide whether, whether to confirm that plan. Before the judge makes her decision on whether to confirm it or not, there'd have to be a vote so you, you propose your plan. If the judge thinks that the disclosure is adequate and it's worth putting this plan to a vote, it goes to a vote. And then the court decides whether to approve the plan, whether to confirm it or not. And if, if she confirms it, then it's binding on all of the parties. Their claims are now the reduced amounts that were agreed to. There are a number of provisions that come into play at this point. There are two or three that are particularly contentious, and I'll mention one, which I talk about a little bit in the article, and that is there's a requirement that the plan not discriminate unfairly against a class that has voted no. So if a class votes yes, they just vote yes. If two-thirds of the creditors or two-thirds of the employees vote yes, their class has voted yes, and they've accepted their treatment. But if they vote no, the plan can still be approved. It's referred to as a cram down. 
but it has to, among other things, meet this unfair discrimination standard. It cannot unfairly discriminate. That has been a big issue in cases like Detroit. It's going to be a big issue in Puerto Rico because bondholders' claims are, are restructured under these plans. More than pension beneficiaries' claims are restructured. And the question is, is that unfair? Is that unfair discrimination? In the Detroit case, the court said, no, it was not unfair. There were good reasons for treating pension beneficiaries different than bondholders. So that simplified description of the bankruptcy process was not so simple, I think, in some <laughs> respects. But it, you pick a bankruptcy judge, you negotiate a restructuring, the parties vote on it, and then the court decides whether it's okay. And there are two or three key requirements that have to be satisfied one of the biggies being that unfair discrimination standard. And David, just to clarify, when Congress is writing the law to kind of set the state bankruptcy framework, they're the ones who are writing whether the chief justice picks the judge or things like, what is the unfair discrimination standard? And I think you write your essay that that should be kind of left undefined, I believe you say. But So what, what is Congress's role in setting those terms? Congress can set all of those terms. And it really would have to set some of the terms. They would have to tell us how the bankruptcy judge or how the judge gets selected. There has to be a mechanism for that. But it can leave terms undefined. And and unfair discrimination is a good example of that. I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. After the Detroit bankruptcy, when Congress was talking about the possibility of a Puerto Rico legislation, and I said in that op-ed, creditors, a lot of the creditors in Detroit felt as though they weren't treated well or fairly in the Detroit case. And I said, I felt like there was something to that concern and that if Congress wanted to be specific, they could put precise parameters around unfair discrimination. They could say something like one class of creditors cannot be given more than 10% more or more than 15% more than another class of creditors. So you could make sure, as a matter of the law, that classes of creditors are not treated significantly differently. After watching what happened in Detroit, after watching what's happening in Puerto Rico, I'm less enthusiastic about precise rules. I'm of the view it ought to be left up to the judge to decide whether there are legitimate justifications for the differences in treatments among creditors. But that's up to Congress. Congress can either give a what we in, in the law world called a standard. You know, we call it rules versus standards. Congress can give a standard. Unfair discrimination is just an open-ended standard. It can also give a precise rule. And that really is in Congress's court. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time today. But before we let you go, we did want to have your input on what will likely happen from here on out. So both in terms of you know, financial solvency of, of a number of states. You wrote at the time, and I guess this was our summer issue. So you were writing then that you didn't think it was super likely that many states would be forced to take advantage of this, even with the pandemic. So we want to know if that's really how much that stayed true. And then also what the political sort of consensus has been, or whether or not they've even taken up state bankruptcy as a possibility. So this is all still ongoing, as you know. When I wrote the essay, it was the beginning in some resorts earlier in the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic, and it remains to be seen what the next aid package is going to look like, if there's going to be a next aid package. What is the condition of states? It hasn't gotten better. You know, Illinois is in horrendous shape. Connecticut's in terrible shape. New Jersey's in terrible shape. 
Kentucky's not in great shape. I mean, there are a lot of states that are in bad shape, primarily because of underfunded pensions, but for other reasons as well. And the pandemic has reinforced that. If there's no aid, no more aid to states and localities, I, I think it could be a real crisis. I mean, I think the crisis could get significantly worse. As I say in the piece, I'm not in favor of putting a bankruptcy option in place and using that as a substitute for aid to the states. In my view, the pandemic is a completely unanticipated, really from states' perspective, unanticipable crisis. It's not something they could realistically insure against. They can insure against a normal recession. They ought to be expected to set aside rainy day funds to cover a normal recession. This is not a normal recession. In my view, Congress ought to give them enough money to plug their coronavirus hole, not to bail out earlier deficits, but to plug that hole. That's being debated right now. There's a lot more discussion about how much states will get, if anything, than there is about state bankruptcy. I was hoping that there would be more discussion of state bankruptcy during this debate. It is always, at least in the current world, against the odds that it would get passed. As we were talking about earlier, Democrats are queasy about it because they worry that it, it will hurt public employees and pension beneficiaries. Republicans tend to be worried about it because of the bond market concerns. I think both of those complaints are mistaken and actually backwards, but they are out there and people do think about it. It also is the case that most of the time states can muddle through. In my own view, the, the strongest argument against state bankruptcy is that at the end of the day, no matter how bad things get, if states cut their spending, raise their taxes, they do have the power to tax, they can muddle through crises. The question I have for that is, well, what happens if they don't and what happens along the way? And it seems to me that a lot of the fixes that we depend on, things like cutting spending sensibly, don't work very well and are not working very well. So I think bankruptcy needs to be on the table. I'm not hugely optimistic it will. I mean, the only cause for optimism at all that I have is 10 years ago when this debate came up, it was lonely. I was almost the only person. I, I testified in Congress in a panel, I think, with five people on it. Four people thought state bankruptcy was loopy. And that was me uh, trying to defend it. I was at probably 10 academic conferences, almost always. I was the only one defending state bankruptcy. Ten years later, there actually is more support in the academic world. A few people are at least more open than they used to be. I don't, they're not marching behind my banner at this point, most of them, but there are some people who have come around to the view that the bond market complaint about state bankruptcy really just doesn't hold water. You know, it's just not a plausible concern about state bankruptcy. A few people have seen what's happened in this municipal bankruptcies and, and are open to the possibility, well, maybe it's not the end of the world for pensions if you file for bankruptcy. But we're still a long ways from a state bankruptcy law. If there ever is one, I hope you all will have me back on. So, or, you know, even if not, I'll come back on to cry in my milk. But, but I'm hoping it will at least get discussed in connection with this aid package, because I, I really do think it's a piece of the puzzle. 
Well, David, it was, it was a really interesting topic. We were happy to give you the platform in national affairs to write about it and also to talk about it here on the podcast. So we, we're just disseminating the ideas. So maybe it'll filter. Maybe some member of Congress will pick it up and uh, really like the idea. I hope so. Well, there are a couple. I mean, there are a, a small handful who are on board. I have had conversations with you. Know, we, meet in, we meet in secret places in the dark. <laughs> There are a few people on in Congress who are on board and a few others who are at least open, but I think it'll be a while before your platform, even your platform, <laughs> change the debate. And this is a great platform. <laughs> well, all we can do is write about the ideas, right? But again, uh, we really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Oh, thank you. This has really been fun. If you'd like to read David's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.